Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Alana Nash to kick off our 14th season with a discussion of her book, The Colonel, The Extraordinary Story of Colonel Tom Parker and Elvis Presley, which is coming out in a new expanded edition on June 21st. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Alana Nash, the author of The Colonel, The Extraordinary Story of Colonel Tom Parker and Elvis Presley. Welcome back, Alana. Thanks for having me. And this is like the Moby Dick of rock and roll stories. Colonel Tom Parker is about as morally ambivalent as it gets. You know, he is, but it's uh, while it's tempting to paint him uh, with a totally black brush, he did a lot of really terrific and important things for Elvis, too. Yeah, he's a really remarkably um, competent and aggressive manager. He definitely maximized the revenue that was coming into Elvis, um, but at considerable cost. Well, yeah, uh, he certainly limited uh, his star and, and his ability to fulfill his destiny, I think, uh, as far as all of the aspects of entertainment. And so you open up the book um, with a Machiavelli quote, which is totally fitting. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read it out. I'm not going to dwell on it, but it's cunning and deceit will serve a man better than force to rise from a base condition to great fortune. That's definitely the story of Colonel Tom Parker, who literally rose from nothing. And there's, there's another quote, though, that is your words that I want to get you to elaborate on. You, you call him a master illusionist in business and the business of life. Tom Parker made something very great out of nothing, including himself. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, this is a guy who, who came to prominence uh, in, in entertainment uh, through, through the carnivals, initially in carnivals in his native Holland. He, he was not an American citizen, uh, even though he claimed that he was from West Virginia. That was a total ruse. So he grew up learning how to separate people from their money. And he grew up believing, uh, well, living by this, this uh, doctrine. You either con or you get conned. And so he was always on the lookout for some way um, to get ahead and then eventually to get his star ahead uh, in a way that put other people down and gave them um, uh, dominance. Uh, he had also another rule that he lived by, which was always have something better than a contract. So 
this is a guy who thought like a scam artist and to a large degree was a scam artist. Uh, the irony is that he had a, a very <laughs> kind of, uh, as a lot of scam artists do, con men do, he had a rigid uh, code of honor with, within that system. <laughs> and he also had a technique or an art that he called snowing. And you describe it as the exquisitely performed act of separating people from their money, leaving them with a smile on their face and melting away before they realize what had taken place. Can you elaborate on snowing and Tom Parker's philosophy of same? Well, he, he, again, it's it's a way of taking advantage of somebody without their realizing that you had just fleeced them. You just dumped uh, the contents of a snowplow on them without their even realizing what had happened while you're walking away with the money. So he, he loved to, to perpetrate this idea so much so that he had a snowman's club uh, where he issued a, a rule book and uh, a, a, a membership card. And if you were good enough at conning people and leaving them with a smile on their face while you took all their money, then you would be named a snowman and, and worthy of joining the club. <laughs> Quite an honor. Quite an honor. <laughs> and there's so much in this book. This book is incredibly valuable for any student of Elvis and, and Tom Parker. And I want to thank you for the research you've done and, and, and also the depth of thought and seriousness of purpose that you put into this. You're definitely not trying to make black or white moral decisions. You're trying to get to the root of the story with room for nuance, but at the same time, not pulling any punches. And we're going to flip over some pretty dark rocks or rocks that take us to dark places. So I don't want to spend too much time on the relationship with Elvis and Tom Parker, but I do want to sort of give the blanket overview. And you, you, you say this, you've got this in the book. You say allegations that Parker had destroyed Elvis, stifling his artistry in third-rate Hollywood formula pictures, suffocating his ambition in 837 Vegas performances from 1969 to 1976, and killing his will to live by refusing to challenge him in meaningful ways, say a European tour, a dramatic film role to reclaim his self-respect, or a crack at a memorable song. Those are, that's pretty much the knock on Tom Parker, that he isolated Elvis, that he cut Elvis off from opportunities. Just real quickly, why do you think Tom Parker did that? Well, he thought like this. He, he believed in now money, now money, meaning he never thought this was going to last. But at the same time, he was trying to build a career for Elvis in this way so that when uh, the records fizzled out. He had the movies. When the movies fizzled, fizzled out, he had Vegas. In other words, he was always. And, and when when Vegas fizzled out, he had the uh, special events like the Hawaii satellite show. So he was thinking ahead in that way, but he still didn't really believe this was going to last. And and he made Elvis think it was not going to last. And so it was always. He lived his whole life. Parker lived his whole life as someone who could pick up and leave at any moment. You know, he didn't want to own property. He didn't want to be burdened down by possessions. Um, he lived like a carny his entire life, or somebody who, who lived on the lamb and, and had to flee at, at a moment's notice. And let's take this moment to cue our first song. And this is from Gene Austin from 1927. This is My Blue Heaven. After we hear this, I'll let you introduce Explain how Gene Austin fits into the Tom Parker story. This is Gene Austin, My Blue Heaven, one of the biggest hits of the late 1920s. A fireplace, a cozy room, 
city makes dreams Where happy am I That was Gene Austin's epic hit, My Blue Heaven. Gene Austin, possibly the first of the crooners, the first to adapt to electric microphones. This became a huge genre with Bing Crosby and Rudy Valley and Russ Colombo and others. Um, but Gene Austin was kind of Tom Parker's entree into the music business. How did that connection come about and what did he do for Gene Austin? That's right. Uh, Parker was a low-level worker with the carnivals. He sold candy apples and and he did um, menial things, uh, you know, with the rides or maybe when, when he was with a circus for a brief period of time, took care of the elephants. And he met Gene Austin through the carnivals. And by that time, Gene Austin was not this big star. He was uh, uh, kind of – he was in the mid-30s, I believe. He was down on his luck. He was losing his voice. He was an alcoholic. He owed, uh, owed a lot of money to the IRS. But he had a tent show that was about to, to cover the country. And he needed somebody to be a press agent for that. And and Parker presented himself, even even though he hadn't really been a press agent, although he had he had uh, billboarded carnivals as an advance man, putting up banners and signs. But he sold himself to Gene Austin uh, with this phenomenal ability to bring in the crowds. And Austin went for it. Uh, but that show did not last very long. Uh, Austin really was pretty washed up by that time. But but that once uh, Parker got a taste of show business in that way, he, he just had to have more. And he was successful at making the most out of Gene Austin, even though the guy was a fading attraction. And that was his cleverness and opportunism are really no, notable from the beginning. But I want to go further back because, as you say in the book that says, Parker was a man of not just one, but many secrets and the keeper of several fantastic tales he sought to preserve with Elvis almost always paying too much of the prize. And the biggest secret, and this is something that didn't come out until four years after Elvis died in 1981, which was that he was not Thomas Andrew Parker from Hunting West Virginia, as he had always claimed, but instead, and forgive my pronunciation, maybe you can help me with this, it was Andreas Cornelis Van Kuyk, born in Holland, which came out in 1981. How did he conceal his secret identity all those years? Well, you know, he 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 had a kind of an accent, by the way. Um, you you didn't really know it until until you were you were looking for it. But he claimed he was from West Virginia, and at the time Elvis was coming into prominence, West Virginia was still you know pretty pretty a pretty isolated state, and his his accent sounded kind of like a, a lisp, although it wasn't really a lisp. He couldn't really say uh, Jays. Uh, he couldn't, and he couldn't really say R's very well. So uh, there's a recording that uh, a DJ in Canada named named uh, Red Robinson made with him, and he's asking to talk to uh, Elvis. And Parker says to him, "You just missed him. Just missed him. It's for just missed him." So people just wrote off his accent as kind of being some eccentric West Virginia thing, but um, he was able to conceal it because he. He had a wonderful way of uh, being very visible in public in, in that he looked the part of somebody who was flamboyant and eccentric and would 
pull the wool over your eyes at, at, at any second. And people were kind of uh, charmed by that initially. But later on, he, he used that to uh, to get the goods on people and to take advantage of them and always uh, pull out some kind of power trick, particularly with the executives at RCA and in, and in the movie business. Yeah, and, and it's fascinating to read about his negotiations with those entities because it's like an endless poker game. I think it was H.L. Hunt, the great Texas oil man or evil Texas oil man who once set a wildcatter down in a poker game and wouldn't let the guy out until the guy had gambled away his leases and the other guy didn't know that the oil had come in. And Parker is kind of like that with RCA. He's the game never stops. There's every time they renegotiate, there's another contract and another set of demands. And eventually he kind of painted Elvis into a corner where the colonel had grabbed so much of the budget to pay Elvis and the colonel that there was no budget left over for co-stars, sets, travel, quality scripts, et cetera, et cetera. So like you say, it, it was a very short-term thinking and sabotaged Elvis's artistry in the long run. But Let's talk a little bit about what we know about Parker's background. Where was he born? What was his family like? And did he have sort of a kernel, a, a circus or carnival connection in his family background? Well, his name is Andreas Cornelis van Kauk. It's kind of hard to wrap your mouth around that. And, and I, Dutch people will laugh at the way I say it, too. But uh, that's about as close as I can get to it. Uh, he came from a town called Breda which was, um, if you're looking at a map of the Netherlands, it's down, uh, you know, sort of getting nearer to uh, Belgium, uh, a very small town. Uh, his father, uh, well, they lived above a stables, uh, well, a large family, and his father drove a wagon. He was kind of the UPS of his day, uh, delivering packages. And so they kept those horses, uh, took care of the horses in the stable below. But this is a very, you know, poorly paid uh, employee who was not in good health. But uh, Dries is also, that was also his nickname, Dries, or also Andre, was always figuring out a way to do uh, odd jobs to make money. And what he really liked to do was help with the carnivals. Um, he never really had his own uh, carnival, although he used to say that he had the Great Parker Pony Show. And what that really was, and that was once he got to America, he would have kitty pony rides. But there was no Great Parker Pony Show that he claimed his parents had run in America. <laughs> and he apparently had traveled to America surreptitiously a couple of times before he makes his final immigration. What do you know about that? And, and what does it reveal about the Parker that we come to know? Well, his family thought that he had come over. He, he came over twice. Uh, the first time there was a big going away party for him with his family. And he wrote home all the time. And uh, uh, he was 17 when he went. And uh, he had a big time. He worked on Chautauqua. He did uh, lots of odd jobs. He worked, at, I believe, uh, as a chauffeur for a time on one of these trips, at least, and uh, came home full of stories. But when he left the second time, he left very abruptly. He didn't tell anybody goodbye. Uh, he just was there one day and gone tomorrow, leaving behind all of his possessions, his money, his identifying papers, and his clothes, which was pretty odd for him, A, because he just worshipped money, 
And B, he loved his clothes. He was quite a dandy as a young man, but he left his entire trunk. He was working uh, in Rotterdam at that time, uh, loading uh, cargo ships, uh, but he just disappeared in the dead of night. And what I do know from uh, a young man named Byron Raphael, who was a William Morris employee assigned to the colonel and was with him a lot, just one-on-one, driving him across the country, was that uh, Parker told him that he had uh, uh, signed on aboard a ship um, as a dishwasher, I believe. And when they uh, landed in Mobile, Alabama, uh, he never went and picked up his check, He just, which means he was penniless out in the country. Um, his English still wasn't very good, but uh, whatever had happened that made him leave very quickly uh, was something that he couldn't risk anybody finding out by going and picking up his check. And let's hear our next song, and then I want you to tell me a little bit about Parker's relationship with this artist, and then we'll circle back to this big mystery at the heart of the Tom Parker story. And this is Eddie Arnold's I'll Hold You in My Heart, which was his, I believe, second country number one, the one his first songs to make the pop charts. This is Eddie Arnold, Eddie Arnold, I'll Hold You in My Heart. Till I can hold you in my arms Like you've never been held before I'll think of you each day And then I'll dream the night away Till you are in my arms once more the stars up in the sky and that was eddie arnold's big hit i'll hold you in my heart so tell the listeners who are baffled why am i playing an eddie arnold song and what was eddie arnold and colonel tom parker's life well after the gene austin show uh the, the colonel got a job as the dog catcher of Hillsborough County, Florida, or Tampa, Florida. And he probably started the first pet cemetery in America. But he also, you know, coming out of that experience with Gene Austin and the fact that the Humane Society did not have much money, the colonel figured out a way to raise money. And that was by booking country music artists uh, in Tampa to putting on shows for revenue. And one of the people he got was Roy Acuff. And uh, Roy talked to him about managing him, but they decided that was not – Roy's family decided that was not a great idea. But Roy told him to keep an eye on Pee Wee King, who had a band called the Golden West Cowboys, because the lead singer for the Golden West Cowboys was a young man named Eddie Arnold. And so Parker brought them in to Tampa and then started working on Eddie to leave uh, Pee Wee King's band and to go out as a solo artist. And it took him a little while to do it, but that's what he did. And he launched Eddie Arnold, built him into a big star. And that's how you know that name today, because of what he did with him. And we'll come back a little bit more in detail of some of how Parker did that for Eddie Arnold. But now I want to go back to this this deep, dark mystery, because this this is something that you have done a lot of research on and really, I think, told this story as well or better than anybody. The same day that Parker disappears from Holland, a young woman, a greengrocer's wife named Anna von den Inden, uh, was murdered near where Parker had been. You say there's no shred of evidence connecting or implicating Car- Parker as a murderer, 
but you say there's a web of circumstance that makes it impossible not to speculate that he might have been involved somehow. Tell us about this. Well, that's right. And speculate is the word. It's a theory of mine that explains really all all the rest of his life, but it is only a theory. And there's a good bit of circumstantial evidence, but it is only that. And I do want to stress that. I cannot say with certainty that he killed this woman. But uh, first of all, the, the window of time in which he left, again, overnight, does coincide with her murder. He was living in Rotterdam then, but he went home for religious holidays, and her, her killing occurred over one of those holidays. She was roughly his age. They had to have known each other. Uh, that town was very small. They went to the same church, and she was a newlywed. Uh, she lived on the street where his mother lived. His father had died by that time. They had moved from the stables into a place on the same street where this greengrocer was. And Tom Parker was inordinately fond of fruit. He loved strawberries, any kind of fresh produce. He would have been in that store. He had to have known her. But my theory about this is that he came home for this holiday. He had a thing for her. He found out she was a newlywed. He went to see her and that they got into an argument. She was killed by a blow to the back of the head and What I think happened is that if he is the one who killed her, he killed her in a fit of rage, that it was an accident. He picked up something and struck her. Whoever killed her uh, had an immediate change of heart because he ripped up clothing to to, to try to bind her wound. But then whoever killed her did something very, very strange, which is that he, he sprinkled pepper all through the house. And you go, pepper? What is that about? Well, the police in Breda in 1929, when this occurred, used dogs to to sniff out the scent of someone who had perpetrated a crime. And Parker would have known that, and he would have been level-headed to think of that in a time of crisis because he worked with animals. He worked with dogs, and uh, he knew that about uh, the the scent and and how to get away from the scent. Um, All I can say is that he left during that window of time, again, taking nothing, landed in America, did not pick up his check, uh, went into the carnivals, and then he went into uh, the U.S. Army. And uh, he cut off all contact with his family other than to have an allotment taken out of his army pay and sent home to his mother. Whereas before, uh, on the first trip, he wrote them a lot. He would occasionally send a letter but he would sign it Andre slash Tom Parker uh, and send photographs, meaning I am changing my life and my identity. And uh, after a while, you will not hear from me again. Weird stuff. And his army career is also quite a bit of mystery. And it took not just you, but a lot of people digging into the history and trying to find the records and it's never entirely like the complete set of records was never found. Is that correct? But some records were found. Well, the, there were a couple of books about Parker before me, one uh, before mine, and one did by uh, Dirk Vellinga, uh, uh and Mick Farron did a really terrific job in tracking uh, Parker's enlistment and his service in Hawaii, where Elvis would spend much of his career. What they were not able to get, and I was not able to get until I hired an Army records researcher, 
uh, were records from his, about his transfer from Hawaii. He went to Pensacola, Florida. And the records that did still exist, there had been a big fire of, of Army records in St. Louis in the 70s. But uh, my records researcher, his name was Dick Beelan. He's still alive, and he's really terrific, uh, was able to find um, his uh, discharge papers and also his uh, morning reports and rosters. And they show that once he got to Pensacola, Florida, he went AWOL. And he went AWOL for a very long time, it, and I hired a researcher down there to go through uh, the microfiche uh, of the newspapers of the time to see if um, there had been a, a circus or a carnival going through. And indeed, there was a circus going through at the time that he went AWOL. Um, I'll stop there because it's uh, it's quite a story from then on out, but it's a lot to absorb at one time. Yeah, you know your man. I, I think that that's key to knowing Tom Parker is to look to see if there was a circus in town. Yeah, <laughs> if, if yeah. he ran off with it. But something that you found in these army records, um, because you know once he comes back, then he's put in in solitary confinement. He has a massive psychotic break um, right. after being in solitary confinement, and then he's at Walter Reed Hospital, and when he's discharged. They give him an honorable discharge because they diagnose him with psychosis, psychogenic depression, and a constitutional psychopathic state, thereby saying that he's not responsible for his conduct because he's so mentally disabled. Um, but psychopathy usually isn't treated as a disability. It's treated more as a red flag for other people to be aware of because a psychopath has no conscience. A psychopath has no empathy. Do you really think Tom Parker was a psychopath? I think he was probably a sociopath. Um, a psychopath takes it to a different bit of a level. But constitutional psychopathic state is 1933 language, according to two psychiatrists that I showed this to, for antisocial personality disorder. That's what we would call it today. And that's how most murderers are classified as having antisocial personality disorder. Yeah, it's um, it's a scary thing. I've dealt with a couple of people later found out that they were sociopaths and, and were not people I was expecting, but they revealed it in their behavior and the consistent pattern of burning other people, of interactions that left the other person extremely disadvantaged with no consideration on the part of the perpetrator for, for the harm they've caused. And that does seem consistent with Tom Parker. And then one other thing I want to get at with Parker, because you know, you talk about with, with the woman uh, that was killed, Anna Van Inden, that perhaps they'd had a relationship or, or some kind of connection. And you know, Parker was married to a woman, Marie Mott Rossair, Mrs. Parker. It's unclear if they ever even legally married. But it's also very unclear about their relationship. And you quote several people in the book who say Parker was asexual. Um, yeah. But let's take our sponsor break. And then when we come back, I'll let you answer that question. And so Tom Parker's relationships with women seem superficially straightforward. He was married to Marie. By all appearances, they had a close relationship. They certainly had a partnership. But... There's a lot of questions about his sexuality and if he was even interested in sex. Well, you know, Byron Raphael said to me, and somebody else said the same thing, that 
what he got off on really was not sex, but screwing people out of money. So they would watch him <laughs> on the phone, <laughs> watch him on the phone negotiating a deal. And of course, negotiating something, you know, throwing something crazy. He did this at MGM later, uh, like insisting that this, you know, deal for more money than Elvis, had, any any actor had ever gotten in Hollywood. The, the deal was only good if the studio threw in the ashtray on the table. You know, he was always looking for something to throw people off, keep them on guard and off kilter so he could take the most advantage of them. So negotiation was was uppermost to him, not not women. <laughs> oh, what a character. Um, and then in the war period, there's this opportunity, uh, the Smith Act, which basically required aliens, people, non-citizens who were in the United States to register. But it also gave this incredible opportunity for people who are here illegally to get amnesty and become citizens. Parker did not take advantage of that. And ultimately, at the end of the book, you show how he used this status where he had surrendered his Dutch citizenship when he joined the U.S. Army, but he never became a U.S. citizen. And ultimately, that proved to be helpful to him in a legal case. And the implication, I don't know if you ever quite say it in the book, but the implication is that that was kind of his whole card should he ever be extradited um, to Holland for some reason. Is that a fair way to characterize it? Yes, it is. The Smith, the Smith Act was 1940, and it said, come forward if you're here illegally, and we'll make you a citizen. We'll forgive the fact that you've been here illegally. And he ignored that. And, and then there was another opportunity for him to do that when he had Eddie Arnold. And again, he turned that down. He just didn't reply. So, you know, he's always thinking ahead. He's always looking for an escape route or some way to get away. And, you know, somebody in the book says he had it from the eyebrows up. And, you know, this not becoming a citizen comes in handy if you find that you're in trouble or you're you are um, discovered here illegally uh, because you and you've, you've forfeited your Dutch citizenship by joining the U.S. Army while pledging to become a citizen. But you never actually do. You go AWOL before you do. So that means. And, and he essentially said when uh, after Elvis died and he had evaded several lawsuits, uh, guess what? You know, you can't sue me in federal court because I'm not an American citizen. Uh, furthermore, you can't deport my, my name is Andreas Cornelissen Kauk. I was born in, in Breda, Netherlands, uh, but you can't deport me to the Netherlands because I forfeited my Dutch, Dutch citizenship. So he's literally a man without a country, and that came in pretty handy for him. Yeah, it did. And I mean, that to me is the piece that really makes your murder theory – is the biggest piece of evidence for the murder theory, that, that he clearly had something to hide. There was some reason he didn't want to leave the country and that he never became a citizen because that becomes a huge handicap for him and – distorts the course of Elvis Presley's career and, in fact, of global music history because Elvis Presley never tours England. He never tours Europe. He never tours South America. He never tours Japan. You know, there was this enormous demand for Elvis Presley. He was globally as famous as anybody uh, of his era, the Muhammad Ali or the Beatles, anybody. There was this enormous demand for him to go international, and Parker never would do it. And Elvis apparently never knew why. 
And, um, you know, he managed to put him off with things like the global satellite show from Hawaii and other subterfuges. But yeah, I mean, to me, that answer is like one of the biggest questions about Tom Parker and why was he doing this? You know, I mean, somebody who got himself named a colonel by the governor of Louisiana could surely have solved his citizenship problems if he had wanted to. Oh, yeah. With one phone call. Uh, he knew all of the top politicians in Tennessee where he kept his office, and he was great personal friends with Lyndon Baines Johnson before he became president. But uh, even after he became president, they were in touch. Uh, there are letters that I was able to get copies of from the, from the Johnson Library, and um, Linda uh, Johnson came to one of Elvis's sets, movie sets. So certainly LBJ could have cleared that up for him, I mean literally with one phone call. So you have to ask. Why didn't he? Why why didn't Parker pull in that favor? And it appears um, you have a theory, and I think it's it's a at least very well worth considering and think about because I think it explains some of these mysteries. Although, as you say, Tom Parker was unknowable. There's this void at the center of the story that that no one will ever get to the bottom of. Nobody got to the bottom of in his lifetime, and it's highly unlikely to me that he even examined himself in any sort of in-depth or serious way. But let's get back to his career a little bit. You tell some stories right from the beginning when he's first promoting shows for Roy Acuff and Minnie Pearl in Tampa as a, as to fund, raise funds for the Humane Society there. He had this really clever promotional idea where he got a grocery store chain to sell um, to buy, take out ads in newspapers with coupons and discount tickets to the show so that they're creating this huge demand for the show, a win-win-win, and Parker paid nothing for this. Like right from the beginning, he's doing these really inventive, clever, innovative promotional techniques, and his trademark of never footing the bill is present from day one. It's just incredible. Yeah, yeah, always thinking. Uh, I interviewed Minnie Pearl for that, who was on that show, and she talked about how he was uh, just always thinking and, and had a new way of promoting it. But, you know, a lot of that comes uh, right out of the carnivals. I mean, he was uh, – one of the things that he really uh, is worth, you know, his stature in popular culture is that he was brilliant in bringing the, the carnival techniques of marketing and merchandising first to rock and roll and then to the culture as a whole. Uh, so – you know, he was always trying to make money, always trying to separate people from their money and get the drop on them. But he also was, I think, terrified in some ways of having to go back to the carnivals. You know, it's interesting uh, that the movie Nightmare Alley is out now because uh, the original version with Tyrone Power was his favorite film. Um, and it, one of his jobs in the carnivals was was rounding up the alcoholic geek to get him to sit in the pit and, and bite the head off of a live chicken. And while he was very fond of people from the carnivals, like the um, what we used to derisively and kind of sadly call freaks, but people who had physical abnormalities or were short people, little people, uh, those were his friends. He loved midgets. He was very, very fond of midgets. And he would go visit these folks years after he left the carnival. But he was there was a part of him that was terrified he was going to have to go back and work in the carnivals. Yeah, the history that he could could not escape was afraid of dragging back but let's hear our next song this is hank snow's i'm moving on and after we hear it i'll let you tell how hank snow comes into the tom parker story that big a 
wheel rolling down the track means you're too loving daddy ain't coming back cause I'm moving on I'll soon be gone you are flying too high for my little old sky so I'm moving on that big loud whistle as it blew and blew said hello to the southland we're coming to you and we're moving on oh hear my song you had the laugh on me, so I've said to you free, and I'm moving on. And that was Hank Snow, I'm moving on. And so after Eddie Arnold's incredible rise to the top, in 1953, Arnold fires Parker. And I want to go back and go through that history a little bit more. But Parker ends up, one of the reasons he got fired was he was two-timing Eddie Arnold. He, he always promised Eddie Arnold, you're my only client. And then Eddie Ar- Arnold got first-hand evidence that Parker was promoting shows for Hank Snow behind his back. And then Hank and Parker have a partnership where they book shows and promote shows. And at one point, it appeared that they were jointly going to take over the management of a young man named Elvis Presley. How was it that Hank Snow never became Elvis Presley's co-manager? Well, this really shows the, the colonel at work. And by the way, I, I have a friend, a Dutch journalist, whose name is Constant Myers, and he, he was able to do something I wasn't able to do. He got Hank on the phone. Uh, he was working on a documentary film about the colonel, and he asked to interview Colonel Parker, and, and Hank Snow said to him, sir, that name is a curse word to me. <laughs> so he, he did not get his interview, but he got a great quote. Well, yes, you're right. So so Parker is managing and booking Eddie for 25% of everything for exclusivity and two-timing him, as you say, with, with uh, Hank. So they have this uh, Jamboree Attractions, which had been Parker's company, and he, he, he blends it with Hank Snow, and he tries to wrangle uh, a very young Elvis Presley to, to this company. But Gladys Presley doesn't trust Colonel Parker. She, you know, she may not have been an educated woman, but she was smart and she had street smarts and she had great intuition and she didn't like him and she didn't want Elvis to go with him. But she did love country music and she liked Hank Snow. So the colonel sent Hank Snow to Memphis to sweet talk Gladys Presley. And then he went back on his own and he had two contracts in his inside coat pockets. One signed Elvis to the management company and booking agency that he had with Hank Snow. But the other one signed Elvis exclusively to Colonel only, cutting out Hank Snow from the most important music star of the 20th century. And guess which contract he got the Presleys to sign? (laughs) Yeah. Anyone who knows anything about Colonel Parker knows uh, how that fast move was pulled off. So, yeah, just – I mean his M.O. is consistent, and he as as slick as a greased pig. This guy cannot be pinned down and virtually always came out on top of any business negotiation he was involved in. But another pattern of Parker's was this ability to assemble teams around himself, and this is something he did when, once he became Eddie Arnold's manager. And Eddie, you know, as much as he fired him – He wasn't bitter, and he respected Parker. He said he was a ball of fire. He worked hard. He got up early. He didn't drink. He was good at everything. He understood business. He was good with the record company, and he was good with personal appearances. And in fact, after Eddie fired him, Parker managed to get a $50,000 exit payment out of him when he revealed 
that Eddie's contract with the record company had only been signed by Tom Parker. And so Tom Parker had a contract with RCA, not Eddie. And this is telling. And and you say that his relationship with Steve Scholes at RCA, that Parker becomes more of an RCA client than his artist, whether it's Eddie Arnold or Elvis Presley. It's Parker who has a relationship with RCA records. And he you know maneuvers Elvis away from Sun. He takes offers from multiple other record companies, Atlantic, um, uh, Mitch Miller at Columbia, all make offers. But it's only RCA that comes through in a really convoluted deal that Parker engineered, basically guaranteeing RCA would be the winner. He also has this partnership with Hill and Range music publishers, Gene and Julian Aberbach. This is the deal that more than anything retards Elvis's career because if Hill and Range can't publish it, Elvis can't record it. There's a few exceptions to this. Chips Moman in the big 68 comeback managed to get a few songs through like Suspicious Minds, but so much of the dreck that Elvis recorded is because of Hill and Range and the Hollywood deal. Um, and there's also the William Morris Agency. Abe Lasvogel was a, cr- a crony of, of Parker's. And there's this crazy story in the book. And um, if you remember the details, I'd love to hear it. But if you don't, no big deal. But where he sets up one William Morris employee to entrap another William Morris employee and then make an accusation that the second employee had been spying on Parker. Do you remember that one? And can you elaborate on that or, or just his pattern? Yeah. Of, yeah. Well, uh, you know, we have to say that, that um, this team of RCA and Hill and range and William Morris was a team that he had put together already for Eddie. And then, you know, he was loyal to them. This is that kind of loyalty among thieves that I was touching on before, because he, his contracts uh, with these folks were always contracts that benefited the colonel better than it benefited his, his client. So he always came out better than Elvis in, in any of these deals. But while he honored these executives with his loyalty, he also had to punish them. And he had to uh, exert his power over them. For example, you know, these these gentlemen were Jewish, and he would invite them to breakfast at his office and serve them ham. Or they were uh, – Abe Glassvogel, for example, was very short, and he would – you know, they would ask for free tickets, of course, to Elvis' shows. And, he, of course, he would oblige, but he would put them, you know, way up in the stands uh, with behind uh, tall people or where they couldn't see. <laughs> or, you know, he would just – Figure out some way. Uh, he had a, there's a story in the in the book which is called the Colonel, the extraordinary story of Colonel Tom Parker and Elvis Presley. I don't, I don't know if we've even said that, but um, that's an intro. He, he, oh, thank you. So he um, he, he he really humiliates uh, Cecil, uh, not Cecil B. DeMille, but uh, one of the uh, movie executives. Who am I thinking of? Um, not. Yeah, that, not Demille. Is it is it Demille? I, I guess there's it is. definitely a story about Demille where that yeah, where Parker DeMille. came out on top. Yeah, it is Demille. Yes, thank you. Uh, where Demille <laughs> wants to wear this this Elvis button, and he tells him, you know, that they're very very rare, and he's he'll have to struggle to get one for him, and he makes him wait, and he makes him wait, and and by the time he finally gets his, everybody is walking around with one of these before he gets his, but. Um, <laughs> yeah, this the the one you're asking about is the is the um 
the Lenny Hershan story. And Lenny Hershan was actually the William Morris agent who was assigned to Elvis. But uh, Parker didn't trust him. Uh, Lenny was becoming a pretty powerful agent. And, and he was afraid – Parker was afraid, always afraid that somebody was going to steal Elvis from him. Um, and so he, that's one reason he kept Elvis isolated from other show business people. But um, he really didn't like Lenny, who would show up at movie sets uh, unannounced, and, Par- and Parker really got uh, you know scared about this. So he, uh, Lenny was so despised in his office that the employees would put like raw hamburger under the flower pots and wait till it rotted, and he couldn't God. stand to be in there. This is how much people disliked him. But um, so they, the William Morris agent had assigned this this young guy, Byron Raphael, to Parker, and they're paying his salary. But he's really a spy for Parker uh, on the William Morris agency. And uh, he he set up this scenario to embarrass Lenny and to humiliate him in front of Abe Lasfogel. And um, it has to do with the note that he wrote scaring Lenny that he was about to pull Elvis away from the William Morris agency, a note that he totally contrives and, and writes and crumples up and puts in the wastebasket and then has Byron go uh, to, to Lenny and to Les Fogel about, about uh, the fact that, that Parker might be leaving and how it puts the squeeze on Lenny and makes him look really bad with his boss. And also burned um, young Byron, who looks like yes. a traitor to his employers. Yes. Um, and yes. Which you know doesn't it really finished him. It finished him at the William Morris agency. I mean, he could really never go back after his he was finished with the colonel. Yeah, it, it's uh, you know very typical of somebody who's a sociopath and doesn't care about how the how his actions impact other people. But let's hear our last song. This is a song that Elvis recorded in the early '60s at the colonel's request. This is one of the few times the colonel made a musical suggestion. And this is uh, "Are You Lonesome Tonight," which is a song written by Turk and Hanman in 1926. And apparently it was a favorite of Marie Parker. This is Elvis Presley, Are You Lonesome Tonight? And I'm standing there with emptiness all around. And if you won't come back to me, then they can bring the curtain down. Is your heart filled with pain? Shall I come back again? Tell me, dear, are you lonesome tonight? And that was Elvis Presley doing Are You Lonesome Tonight at Tom Parker's request, although it was a hit single for Elvis in the early 60s. And there's so much gold in this book, um, but there's three last nuggets I want to try to get out of you if, you if we can. And one of them is the way Tom Parker negotiated Elvis's time in the Army, because it seems Elvis could have gotten one of those deals where he wouldn't need to get a haircut, he'd be in special services, he'd just perform for the troops, and he could go back and be Elvis Presley while serving in the Army. And yet, the deal that was negotiated was very different from that. Why did Parker consign Elvis to multiple years uh, away from his career, doing KP duty, driving tanks, being a real soldier in Germany, far away from America, where even Parker couldn't see him? What, what do you think the motivation for that was? Well, I think it was threefold. Uh, when Elvis got out of the army, first of all, he didn't even have, he, he could have gotten him out of doing any service at all, but he wanted him to go to show that he was just a boy next door. You know, he was a regular guy. 
but also when he when he came out of the service uh, well, first of all, Parker had been setting up all these film deals for him and also a Sinatra, Frank Sinatra special for when he got out. Um, but by this time, he wanted all those rough edges that had made Elvis, you know, sort of appealing to a certain part of the teenage uh, audience, but also maybe sort of repulsive to <laughs> a segment of the adult audience. He wanted all that gone. So when he came out as the boy next door, he wanted to, him to be polished. He wanted him to be in that tuxedo with Frank Sinatra. He wanted him to be palatable and to he wanted his music to reflect this and also his film roles. You know, no more King Creole, uh, a kind of a, a hooligan with a, a heart of gold and, and no more of that. So he he wanted this whole image change, but at the same time, I, I believe that he he did this uh, to protect himself, and that um, it's very interesting that that Elvis had quite an FBI file, but there's no FBI file for Colonel Parker, That's uh, you know, a man who who went uh, AWOL from the service. Uh, he automatically would have had an FBI file because of that. Uh, but there's nothing. And, and I, you know, this is, again, just a theory of mine. But I believe that um, he traded those those army records, which disappeared um, as a way of getting this deal uh, with the service. And of course, when when Elvis came out, he's playing those free shows in Hawaii. Right. Hawaii, again, where the colonel did his initial military service. Um so I believe it was a deal. I know that he went to the Pentagon numerous times when Elvis was um, in the service, uh, talking with the army about how best to, um, to to use him when he came out. Amazing stuff and big picture stuff. And I think it fills in a lot of the blanks. These just enormous question marks around Elvis. And in the colonel's defense, and we talked about this in email a little bit, I do think there's a possibility that if the colonel had not basically helped the army neuter Elvis. You know, John Lennon famously said after he went to the army, he was dead, that Elvis might very well have suffered a similar fate to, you know, Buddy Holly or Eddie Cochran who die in horrific accidents or, you know, Chuck Berry who goes to prison or Jerry Lee Lewis who's disgraced in a, in a, in a sex scandal and really kind of never heard from again. Or, you know, the only alternatives was like Little Richard renouncing it all and, and becoming a preacher. And so there was definitely this aroused reactionary force in America that was marshaled against these rock and rollers. Obviously, Holly and Cochran were accidents, but, you know, I don't know. I feel kind of like Parker bought Elvis more time, and we we have no way of knowing what would have happened if, if Elvis had had a more conventional rock and roll manager who wasn't able to, you know, perform this negotiation ledger domain and, and and do these things. But like you point out, it apparently it, it helped Parker uh, much more than Elvis. So yeah, just fascinating stuff we could talk about all day. But I want the next thing I want to talk about is Parker's big character flaw and a possible reason why Elvis spent so much time in Vegas in the late 60s. The Colonel had a gambling problem. And how did that impact his negotiations with those casinos? Yeah, the colonel had a big gambling problem. Um, I had three meetings with him in, in his last years uh, in Las Vegas, 
And he always kind of left the meeting talking about, you know, you might want to visit that machine over there or that table over there. I mean, he was, it was never, it was his gambling problem was so bad that he, sometimes he wouldn't even leave his hotel room. They'd just bring the roulette wheel up to him. Um, so uh, Alex Shufi, who was, uh, you know, one of the executives at the, at the hotel, said that uh, it, when the estate and, and the state of Tennessee went after Parker after Elvis's death, uh, uh, Alex Shufi is quoted as saying, you know, he was he was worth a million dollars a year uh, in gambling debts. And what this really meant was that Elvis played a whole lot of free shows uh, to pay off those gambling debts for the colonel. Yeah. And I think kind of the ultimate verdict on Tom Parker's financial relationships with Elvis was delivered um, by an ad litem who was representing Lisa Marie Presley, Elvis's daughter. And the estate was basically happy with Parker's management. But this ad litem threw a spanner in the works in 1980 and, and filed a 300-page report that concluded it was inappropriate for executors to re rely on the agreements that Parker and Elvis had come to in the late 70s. What was going on with, with Parker's financial relationships with Elvis that they were that egregious that a 300-page report was written by an ad litem who's essentially there to make sure that the child's interests are being represented? Yeah. Well, you remember uh, Priscilla was not the original uh, executrix. Um, Vernon, Elvis's father, was still alive. I think he died in 1979 on the colonel's birthday. Um, so when Elvis was was lying in Graceland in his casket for viewing, first by the family and friends and then by the public, Vernon and, and the colonel struck a deal uh, whereby, uh, in fact, Vernon signed this, the colonel would continue to represent Elvis. In fact, he famously said, uh, Elvis isn't dead, just the body is gone, Right. God. So he had already put this this deal together called Boxcar Productions a couple of years earlier, whereby he owned about 80 percent of Elvis's name and likeness. He threw Vernon a pretty big bone and Elvis got the smallest amount of this. So so, you know, Vernon, who had done prison time for altering a, a check about the sale of a hog. Uh, you know, so a, a convicted felon was always interested in the money and not having to work too hard. So Vernon gladly signed this piece of paper, continuing this relationship whereby Parker got 50 percent of some deals, but essentially 80 percent of Elvis's name and likeness. Because El the colonel knew that, the, you know, after Elvis died, the money was going to be in the souvenirs and in the memorabilia and in uh, uh, new contracts he would uh, strike with, with RCA about uh, selling more records. So that's the way they carried on until uh, Blanchard Toole, uh, acting as the uh, guardian ad litem for nine-year-old Lisa Marie Presley, stepped up and said, wait, 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 you know, this is fiduciary overreaching. And so he set this lawsuit in motion, which ended up with Colonel having to admit that he was here illegally and also uh, to relinquish his hold on the Presley estate. But but in a way, the Colonel got the last laugh because he he had kept all of the memorabilia all through the years. And so he sold it later. He sold it to Priscilla and the estate for two million dollars. So always <laughs> thinking this guy, always, always thinking. <laughs> And so to sum it up, where do you how do you weigh Tom Parker in the balance? Was he a net benefit for Elvis? Was he a net benefit for the world? 
what Elvis had been anything you know when Elvis signed up with a part with Colonel Parker he was a second tier country artist who was popular in Louisiana and Texas and beginning to break through in the rest of the south but he hadn't made any impact nationally Parker got him on TV made him the biggest celebrity in the world could anybody well, else have he, done that or go yeah ahead. good question he had won uh, a, a, a an early billboard award on his own but uh, Bob Neal was his manager at the time, and Bob Neal said to me, you know, I just didn't see how big he could be. Nobody had been that big before except Frank Sinatra, and I just wasn't thinking about them in, in, in the same category. So he said, but Parker knew how to do it, and it really it – was, it was the right thing for him to do to let Parker take him. Originally, he just uh, – uh, he brought Parker in to book him into places like New Mexico where, where Bob didn't have any contacts. Bob just had his kind of Mid-South contacts. But he said, you know, he was a razzle-dazzle character. I remember sitting across his desk and having him say, what a razzle-dazzle character – Colonel Parker was, but but it was ultimately it was the right move for Elvis because uh, uh, he took him places that nobody else ha- ha- would be able to do. And in fact, it, even with this team that he had assembled, uh, the William Morris agency was not crazy about Elvis Presley. They thought he was vulgar, uh, the, especially the New York office that was in charge of booking him on those shows, those network television shows, just didn't see it, didn't want to do it. And they weren't really trying very hard. And Colonel took it away from them and did it himself. He got the Tommy Dorsey he shows booked. So he was, you know, bottom line, he was a fantastic promoter. He was not a great manager because the deals always benefited him better than they did Elvis. But, but he did take him places. He did manage to keep him on top always, even through the psychedelic era by, by making sure that he did not do material that was too trendy and in the end, he protected the rights of all estates of dead artists in, in the move that, that he made with Elvis, uh, especially in, in uh, merchandising. Um, so even though he was heinous in lots of ways, and certainly I, I believe that if you kill the art, you kill the artist. And I believe that's part of the, the colonel had a very large role in Elvis's demise. Uh, by not uh, allowing him to uh, move into entertainment fields that would have really challenged him uh, and certainly did not lift a finger to help him once his uh, uh, prescription drug addiction got out of hand. Um, I do believe that on the whole, he was uh, awfully good for Elvis in a lot of ways. And I think that's a pretty fair assessment. The book is The Colonel, The Extraordinary Story of Colonel Tom Parker and Elvis Presley. And Elena Nash has been my guest. Thank you so much. And I hope to have you back to talk about Elvis's women and the Memphis Mafia if you're up for it. Thanks so much, Nathan. You asked such good questions. Thank you. Thank you. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes Peter Ames Carlin to discuss his book, Sonic Boom, The Impossible Rise of Warner Brothers Records from Hendrix to Fleetwood Mac to Madonna to Prince. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com.